All right, if you've got your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We've been singing my message this morning, now I'll try to preach it. All of creation and within our very selves, there is a built-in longing for the restoration of what Adam and Eve gave away in the garden for one bite of forbidden fruit. While we wait for it to manifest in the fullness of time, it's good to be reminded of something Peter wrote in his first letter. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. While we wait for the liberation from the bondage to decay and for the full redemption of our bodies, how we wait is important. During the groans before the glory time that we live in, it's important to keep our groans in the hope alive and yearning category and out of the trap of whining, moaning, and complaining. Our waiting is affected by our attitude. Romans 8.25 says, If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. When our waiting is connected to our expectation of timing and results, it can quickly become what my dad used to call stinking thinking. But when our waiting is tied to the expectancy that God does and will make all things beautiful in their time, then as my dad used to say, we can keep the faith. We can keep the faith. Sitting there watching uh, the, the Dove Awards, the GMA Dove Awards the other night, and there was a group that was on stage singing. I hadn't heard of them before and hadn't, didn't know the song they were singing, but one of the lines they were singing jumped out at me. They said, they said uh, no matter how long you've been waiting on the Lord, he's an on-time God. No matter how long you've been waiting on the Lord, he's an on-time God. And I thought, I'm going to use that in my notes this week. I made myself a note and put it in there. Psalm 27 ends like this. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Be advised, waiting patiently is not for the feeble or the weak of heart. But check this out. Between those two wait for the Lord's, the King James Version says, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. In Hebrew, that good courage is the word hazak. It's the same double-sided word Solomon used when he wrote about finding wisdom. It means to fasten upon, to seize, and to be strong, and to be caused to be strengthened, cured, helped, repaired, and fortified. So like Finding, in Proverbs 3 and 4, this good courage is something for us to do and something that is done for us and within us by God. On our side of the equation, hazak, be strong, be brave and of good courage, calls for a tenacious resolve that overflows from the revelation that God, through the infilling power of the Holy Spirit, is more than willing to give us all the good courage that we need to wait it out, no matter and however long it takes. Just heard a testimony about that from a grandma. The chorus of Christine DeMarco's song, Take Courage, begins like this. Take courage, my heart. Stay steadfast, my soul. He's in the waiting. He is in the waiting. And sure enough, God's side of the Kazakh equation is the addition of his strength to ours. Hazak can actually be understood as God strengthens our hands, takes us by the hand, even God holds our hand. And the underlying emphasis is not so much of what God can do or will do 
as it is about what he is doing right now. He is holding on to us. And as he does, he is encouraging us, releasing courage inside of us. But as it usually is with God, we get to choose to believe that and receive that or not. So in the Amplified, between those two wait for the Lord's and the be brave and of good courage, it says, and let your heart, let your heart be stout and enduring. This kind of wait patiently also means to do so with cheerful hope, endurance, and constancy. It's the exact opposite of frustrated, impatient waiting. It's also not passive, inactive waiting, or just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. Instead, this wait patiently translates into ongoing daily life actions. It's living the active, engaged, focused lifestyle Jesus modeled for us. Intentionally living to serve, not to be served. And as co-heirs with Jesus, it's also living out this servant-hearted lifestyle with an awareness that we are a much-loved, highly favored child of God. It's also attentive waiting. It's purposely waiting on the Lord as if he were our customer. And not only do we get to serve him like that, but when we're waiting on the Lord, we also get to serve with him as he advances his purposes in his kingdom on earth today, which is why this part of Romans 8 is translated in the message, waiting does not diminish us. Any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. The longer we wait, the larger we become. And the more joyful our expectancy. We are to be waiting patiently with expectancy for soma sozo. For our bodies, our soma, to be brought all the way into holiness. As we are sozoed, saved, healed, delivered, protected, preserved, and made whole. In Ezekiel 36, God described the Somo Sozo process like this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to follow my laws. You see the process? God sprinkled with clean water, cleansed by God from all our impurities and idols, receiving a God-given new heart and new spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. When we surrender the control of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we get instant access to the soul-cleansing forgiveness that Jesus secured for us by his death on the cross. And then part of living for Jesus is letting go of whatever ways of the world, impurities and idols we still have in our lives. Those impurities and idols of self and of sin within us resist and hinder us following with all our heart in God's ways. So persistently and creatively, God helps us get free and stay free. Over and over again, he uses kindness to lead us to repentance. And as another one of the songs we sing around here says about God's pursuit of us, you won't relent until you have it all. You won't relent until you have it all. Romans 8, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. This, in the same way, compares the way our hope sustains us in the midst of suffering to how the Holy Spirit sustains us in the midst of weakness. I also want to say that uh, we need and the Holy Spirit does sustain and, and uh, hold us together in our strengths too. If it's a strength, it came from him. And the way to keep it as a strength is to keep perceiving his life and his strength flowing into it. But either end of the spectrum, from our weaknesses to the strength and everything in between, that's where we need the help and the sustaining of the Holy Spirit. In Greek, this helps us means to take hold of anything with another, to take part of a burden, to carry the load together. The King James Version says the Spirit helps our infirmities. And that word for weakness, infirmities, means the places we are without strength. It can also mean a place that we don't have the capacity to do something. And in times like that, the Holy Spirit shares the load and helps us. God does not hold our weaknesses against us. In fact, God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Hebrews 4 says Jesus sympathizes with our weakness because he was tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. Aren't we so blessed that God doesn't hold our weaknesses against us? And aren't we so thankful that Jesus doesn't hold our weaknesses over our heads with, hey, I did it, why can't y'all? I mean, he was fully human. He walked through life. He was tempted and tested in every way, just as we are, did not sin because he kept his heart and his eyes on the Father. He showed it could be done. Don't accept, don't, well, I'm just a sinner. Don't accept that. Jesus modeled a different way for us to live. And he proved it. But he didn't hold it over his, our heads that he did that. Instead, after he did that, tempted and tested in every way, tried just as we are without sin, he went back to the Father and he said, Father, they're going to need some help. They're going to need an encourager. They're going to need a teacher. They're going to need a counselor. They're going to need someone to come. Send the Holy Spirit to be with them. And the father said, that's a good idea. I'll do that. And he sent the Holy Spirit because he knows how we're made. And he knows the struggles that we face down here on this earth. The particular weakness identified here is our prayer lives. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, never give up praying. If the heavens are brass and your prayers only echoes above your head, pray on. If month after month your prayer appears to have miscarried or if you have had no answer, continue to draw near to the Lord. Do not abandon the mercy seat for any reason. Wait, tarry, pray, weep, plead, wrestle, agonize until you get what you're praying for. And if your heart is cold, do not wait until your heart warms. Pray your soul into heat with the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We do not know what we ought to pray for. It's not about a particular prayer method. It's a prayer content issue. Specifically, we do not know what we ought to pray for targets what can sometimes be a confusion about what should we be asking for. It's easy to find ourselves praying too selfishly and too narrowly. And at other times, we can fall into what we perceive to be as an inability to know how to pray intelligently and in accordance with God's will about a specific situation. The good news here is when any of that happens, we're not stuck. Amen. 
The Holy Spirit comes alongside us in our weakness. In the feebleness of our minds and our bodies, the Holy Spirit intercedes and prays for us on our behalf at such a deep level that there are not words to express it clearly. And the Holy Spirit's groans fill the void. Let me dig a little deeper here. This Greek word for pray can mean to pray to God, to supplicate. And I think it's really important for us to remember that. I mean, we're not just praying to some deity. We're not just praying to some little G God. We're having a conversation with the God, the, the one true living God. We, we get to come into his presence. And amazingly, that one true living God, the creator of all things, who sustains all things, who's all everything, amazingly, he's interested in us and in our thoughts. We get to come and we get to supplicate. We get to pray to him. So I think the first part of this pray, the important part here is remembering humility. Too many times we come shaking our finger at God, telling him how he ought to be doing God's stuff. He's a lot better at being God than we are. Amen. So, so it starts with that, the recognition that he's God, we're not. It can also mean to earnestly entreat. And I think what this is, this is, this is an appeal to make uh, sincere requests to God, to, to feel the things you're praying, not just checking off your prayer list, not just vainly repeating the same phrases over and over and over again, but actually feeling and experiencing the things that you're asking God for, being in the process, being in the words. Now, granted, there's some days, man, when you're feeling, you, I mean, when you're praying, it's like you're, cry, you're, you're crying. I mean, it's just overwhelming. And other days you don't have that. It doesn't make one more powerful than the other. The connection is our heart to the process. So to earnestly entreat requires our heart to be engaged in the things that we're praying and the things that we're asking God for. And then this same word for pray can also mean to worship. And I'm telling you, if you want to launch your prayers into a different place, start with worship. Just start with some time of worship, get lost in his presence, and then start talking to him. And watch how that changes the conversation. Sometimes the conversation we bring to God before worship is one thing, and then you worship for a little while, and then the things you're saying to him Completely different tone of voice, completely different perspective, completely different. All that is in this word for pray. Interestingly, Jesus used this same word in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, this then is how you should pray. Leading into the Lord's Prayer, which we just so happened to sing already this morning. Pretty cool. Also hidden in the roots of this word for pray are two more significant application insights. This word is the combination of forward towards and to wish to pray. So when we feel confused, when we feel squeezed, when we feel stretched, when we feel alone, that is not the time to turn and run away or to give up and quit talking to God. Instead, it's yet another time to move forward and towards God in all our conversations and in all our actions because God is interested in our thoughts and in our wishes. God wants us to talk to him about our wants and our desires, as well as the longings of our heart. God wants us to ask and then to listen and watch for his response. In Philippians 4, we're exhorted to rejoice always, to not be anxious about anything, and in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, to present our request to God. You see the forward towards in all of that? This rejoice always, again, doesn't mean hip-hop, happy, goofy, silly. It means calmly happy. This rejoice always is this resolve inside ourselves. God's got this. I don't know how he's going to work it out. Don't know what he's going to do. Doesn't seem like it's even happening right now. 
or maybe it does, but either way, I know he's got this. That's rejoice always. And you put that together with practicing expressive thankfulness, thanking the Lord for just thing after thing after thing that you woke up today, that you had a place to say that we have a church like this that we can come to, that you got a car that you're driving home, that you're going to have food on the table when you get there. I mean, sometimes we think about all the, it's just the, the daily little things. Just let that pile up. Let that Thanksgiving come out. You put calmly happy God's got this together with actively practicing Thanksgiving. You know what happens to anxiety? Out. There's no place for it. There's no place, because here's what anxiety is. Anxiety is projecting a situation now or in the future that God's not in the middle of, and no such place exists. No such place exists. But we have to root that in ourselves by, okay, I know you've got me. I know you've got me. I know you're working. And I'm so thankful that you're doing all these things for me. I'm thankful that that even I'm, I'm having to wait. Well, you know better than I, I, thank you, Lord. You're in the waiting. I thank you for that. I choose to thank you for that. I might not feel like thanking you for that, but I choose to thank you for that. Rejoicing, expressive thankfulness, anxiety gets canceled. That's how we ought to pray for everything. However, even when we don't pray like that, there's no condemnation. But there is always an open invitation into honest, relational prayer honest, relational conversations with God. And the Holy Spirit adds fuel to that invitation as he intercedes on our behalf in ways that aren't limited to known words and languages. And this Greek word for groans means a sigh, to let a breath out audibly. Remember Jesus in the upper room after the resurrection, he breathed on the Holy Spirit, uh, breathed on the disciples and received the Holy Spirit. Well, this says the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, exhales for us, over us, within us, and on us. And as he does, he entreats Jesus' favor on us with prayers over and above what we would think to ask or hope or imagine. Verse 27, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. The New Living Translation says, the Father who knows all hearts. The Passion says, God, the searcher of the heart, knows fully our longings. The message pushes it a little further. God's Spirit knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That phrase stuck inside of me as I was working on this this week. I think it's so easy sometimes to get thinking about God way up there and us way down here. But listen, he's in us. He's in us. His presence, the Holy Spirit in us, keeps us present before God. Whether we recognize it or not, his presence. When we've given our life to Christ and the Holy Spirit comes in us, now we are always present with God. What an amazing, amazing thing to take hold of. Beginning of Psalm 139 echoes that idea. Oh, Lord, you've searched me. You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. And then this footnote in the Passion, I just love this. It said, God searches our hearts not just to uncover what's wrong, but to fulfill the true desire of our hearts to be fully his. Oh, I love that about our God. Yes. I love that about our God. 
Still too many people have the wrong picture for God, just like he's just trying to point out what's wrong in you. Hey, a lot of times it doesn't take God to show you what's wrong in you. I mean, your neighbor, your friend, or your spouse can point out pretty easily stuff that's wrong with you. It doesn't take God to do that. And he can do that. He loves us enough to do that. But when God is searching our heart, I think this, this footnote caught it right. He's searching to uncover inside of us a desire he placed inside of us that is ours when we surrender the control of our life to him to be fully his. And sometimes we get covered up by the cares of this life, but he searches our hearts to uncover. Look, it's in you. It's in you. Look what's in your heart to be fully mine. Look at that. See that and join yourself back into that desire. And in this verse, I love it that it says, in our weakness, it's our hearts that are being searched. And then fortunately, it says, it's the mind of the spirit that's being searched. Man, sometimes in our weakness, you try to search through your own thoughts in your mind. It's a cluttered mess up there. But God searches our hearts and then he searches the mind of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in accordance with God's will. When I read that this week, I thought, well, now that seems rather obvious, doesn't it? I mean, hello, the Holy Spirit is God. So of course, what he prays for will be completely according to and in harmony with God's will for us. But what's hidden here in English is a different Greek word for intercedes. Rather than the word that was used in verse 26, the intercedes here in verse 27 defines the role and the function of the Holy Spirit. The roots of this word for intercedes come from the combination of two words, the word for in a fixed position of and the word for affecting, affecting or effecting. This intercedes means the Holy Spirit is in a fixed position of power to produce results. This intercede tells us that the Holy Spirit is in a fixed position of being functionally operative with the ability to lay hold of us, to work through us, to impress something on our hearts, to reveal something to our minds, to move our feelings and emotions, to correct our will, and even to come over us. This far into my life, I have discovered that the way the Holy Spirit does all those things can sometimes be super, super subtle. And then sometimes it can be overwhelming. Sometimes it's just like goosebumps. Like, whew, where did that come from? Listening to a song or hearing a story or something, you just feel that. Or like this heat that comes over. Or like a breeze that just washes it. Like, where'd that come from? Sometimes it's like that. But there's also other times where the Holy Spirit comes upon you and it's like, it's unmistakable. That was God. That was the Spirit. There, there was, there was, I remember a time where the Holy Spirit, I, I could not, I was in the room, I could not stand up straight. The presence of the Lord was so, you could not stand up straight. If you could move at all, you couldn't stand up straight. One time I was uh, sitting at the piano playing and been doing for a couple of hours and the Holy Spirit, I fell off the bench, fell off the piano, but I couldn't stand the piano bench anymore. There was another time, several times where the power of the Lord came upon me in such a way I could not keep standing up. And you end up being on the floor, just in the presence of the Lord, with wave after wave of his presence washing over us. There's a whole spectrum of that. The Holy Spirit does all of those things in a variety. And what's so amazing to me about the Holy Spirit is he doesn't require the, the, the affirmation, oh, that's you. I mean, we, sometimes things happen to us. We just think, oh, that was a good idea. Or, well, that was cool. Or, I wonder what that was. And the Holy Spirit says, I got you. Even whether you use my name or not. Even, even whether you say, thank you, Holy Spirit, or not, I still got you. I still got you. It's amazing how he doesn't have to take the credit for it, but it's also 
pretty remarkable what happens when we start recognizing, oh, that was God. Oh, that was the Holy Spirit at work in my life. Interestingly, while the Holy Spirit groans and intercedes for us and Jesus interprets, simultaneously, 1 Corinthians 2.10 says, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So the Holy Spirit is working both sides of the equation from this fixed position. And for this reason and many more, it really is essential for each of us to keep cultivating an active, ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit. Over at Kerrville Church of Christ, they're in a series right now where they're teaching about the Holy Spirit. And in the first message of that series, uh, my friend Scott Warner, the pastor there, was talking about the Holy Spirit and had said several things. He said, listen, I just want just, to, we just need to get this out. The Holy Spirit is not Jesus' weird little brother. <laughs> I love that. I love that. A lot of my life, that's the category I had the Holy Spirit in. I'm so thankful that's not where I have anymore. It is important for us to keep developing relationships. It's, it's important for us to develop a relationship with all of who God is. A lot of times we're very comfortable coming to Jesus. I mean, it's Jesus. He's kind. He's humble. He's merciful. So we come running to Jesus. And sometimes we even play good cop, bad cop. You know, if it's a good thing we come to Jesus. If we need love, if we need forgiveness, we come to Jesus. If we need some, God to get somebody, we tell the Father, Father, get him. Do that. Go get him. You know, we're playing good cop, bad cop with, with the Father and, and Jesus. But a lot of times you can just have those relationships and not cultivate the relationship with the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, you're missing something if you're not also pressing in day by day by day to get to know more of Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. First, this often quoted verse does not say that everything that happens is good. It doesn't say that. It does assure us that God is bigger than every situation or circumstance, and therefore God is more than able to work good in all things. So God works for the good. Paul used the unique word here to describe how God works. The most common Greek word for works meant to toil or labor with effort as an occupation, but here Paul used the word for works. That means to be a fellow worker, to co-labor, to cooperate. In all things, God works with us like that. He partners with us. He co-labors with us. He will even co-operate our lives with us. Jesus' offer still stands. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We have an open invitation to be joined to him, to accept and yield to his leadership, and to move at his pace as we continue learning about him and his ways. God works for the good, for the intrinsic, innate, natural, and true good in and out of all things, circumstances, and situations. God works for the good, for the beneficial, spiritually profitable, and useful good, even in a fallen world filled with sin and corruption. God works for the good, for that which is good from his perspective. And he is good. God works for the good. Our danger is we tend to judge the end by the beginning. Or we judge what we cannot see by what we can see. And if we can't see a purpose initially, we can quickly assume there isn't one. But the exact opposite is true. And that's the confidence that we can have as those who love him. And once again... 
hidden in English, Paul used a specific Greek word for love here. This wasn't the verbal assent kind of love like, I love Dr. Pepper. And this wasn't the high standard of agape, God-like, unconditional, unrelenting, perfect love either. This love is agapeo, the deliberate assent of the will as a matter of principle, duty, and propriety. For those who love him, it's about a choice of our will to be engaged in a covenant-level commitment. And without any exceptions, every person on the planet has been called, appointed, invited aloud, and by name into this kind of those-who-love-him relationship with God. That starts with our saying yes to receiving God and to loving God like that. We love because he first loved us. And agapa o love continues on with us choosing to live called according to his purpose. The called are a growing company of people just like us who have surrendered and who keep surrendering the control of our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to the leading of the Holy Spirit. In Greek, according to his purpose references the showbread in Moses' tabernacle and in Solomon's temple. In Exodus 25, 30, God told him, put the bread of the presence, the showbread, on this table before me at all times. Like the showbread, the intention of God's purpose, planned and established before the foundation of the world, is for our lives to be before him at all times. And because that's his purpose and his intention, so they are. There's never a moment of any of our lives that we spend it without being before the Lord, whether we acknowledge that truth or not. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Christ we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. We'll look more predestined next weekend. So let's press in a little more into according to his purpose. Ephesians 3.10-12 says, God's intent was that now through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. You know, Adam and Eve walked like that with God until they disobeyed. And then the very next thing they did was try to hide from God among the trees in the garden. And for the first time, they were aware of their soma. Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. From that moment forward, the waiting and anticipation for soma sozo has been underway. But catch this as we finish up. God's question to Adam that led to Adam's confession was this, where are you? Where are you? To this very day, Whenever we try to hide from God, he still calls out to us. Hey, where are you? Where are you? Whenever we try to hide from God, he still initiates relationship and conversation with us. Whenever we try to hide from God, more often than not, it's a still small voice. Where are you? Hey, come back. Come to me. Come, come to me. There's a couple of examples in the Bible that said, hey, where are you? <laughs> but it doesn't happen that way very often. Most of the time, it's, where are you? 
God's written and rhema words are living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating even to the dividing of soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. And nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And yet Jesus sympathizes with our weakness and exhorts us to approach his throne of grace, not slinking in, not hoping we're okay to be there, to approach his throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. During the middle of the night, I was up thinking about this verse. It's one of my favorites. I think about it a lot, but I just had this picture of coming into the Lord's presence without confidence. You know, we've done something we shouldn't have done or been someplace, whatever, and we just, oh, I don't, oh, I don't know. We're looking down like this, and we're just coming in, not sure we're welcome there. And when we do that, and we're looking at the ground, and we're looking at our feet, we don't realize the whole atmosphere above us is saturated with mercy that actually is there for the taking and bringing into our lives. Rather than judgment, there's mercy that's available at the throne of God when we come to him like that. And the other thing that happens when we're looking down instead of looking up is we miss the smile in his eyes that he is so glad we're there. It's so, he's so thankful that we chose to come to him instead of just slinking away, that we knew him well enough to know even when I've totally messed it up, you're the only place I can go. You're the only one that's got the answer. You're the only, and so here I am, I'm right here. I've come into your presence and we see that because we come in with confidence and take him at his word. In the message, Romans 8, 28 reads, we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. The passion says we're convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together for good. One commentator wrote, the providence of God is clearly taught from one end of the Bible to the other. Our confidence in the providence of God is a faith so bold, so demanding, so unapologetic that we cannot believe it without being transformed. Either all things work together for good or nothing makes sense. So let's be bold about it. Let's either be transformed Christians or bitter skeptics because we cannot just sort of believe Romans 8.28. We either believe it or we doubt it. There is no middle ground. Jesus promised to be, I am. I am with you. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And as we choose to live out our lives with him and to live out our lives for his namesake and for his glory, the redemptive work of Soma Sozo accelerates and is accomplished. And as we wait patiently for it, we can know that we know that we know because we know him that in all things our God is continually working for the good. In the morning, in the evening, in your coming, in your going, in your weeping, in your rejoicing, he is with you. He is with you. He is for 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 you. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. What an awesome God you are. Amen. You could be any way you want toward us, but you choose to be with us. And you choose to be for us and not against us. Wow. Let that get inside of us. 
Right now, we renounce agreement with any lie inside of us that says otherwise. That God would leave us as an orphan or that he'd abandon us. Or that he's against us and working against us. No, you work for our good. You work for our good. You keep calling us into that place that you created before the foundation of the world for us to be in Christ and living that life to the fullest, walking with you with freedom and in confidence. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I thank you that you never give up on us. And again, Lord, thank you that you don't hold our weaknesses against us. But even in those places, you perfect your power and your grace. It, it almost seems too good to be true, but it's the truth. It's the truth. And we pray you just keep winning every part of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to that truth that we could live in it and become fuller and fuller expressions of this word. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. 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 So good. So good.